Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and kidnapping. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. February 9th, 1960 was a bright, winter-crisp morning. Adolf Coors III, CEO of the Coors Brewing Company, kissed his wife goodbye and drove to work through wide-open acres, past his cows and horses, through patches of melting snow and spiny evergreens. The dirt road may have been bumpy, but it was the fastest route to the brewery, a fair trade for more time with his horses and cattle. Yet, as he drove, he noticed something out of the ordinary, a vehicle blocking the upcoming bridge. It was a yellow Mercury, with a man bent over the open hood. Ad gently pressed his foot on the brake, bringing his travel all to a gliding halt. He shifted the truck into park and unfastened his seatbelt. Leaving the motor and radio running, Ad hopped out of the car. As Ad made his way closer to the stalled vehicle, the man backed away from the open hood, allowing Ad to see the source of the car trouble. But Ad couldn't see the stranger's hand slowly reaching into his jacket pocket and grabbing a loaded pistol. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your host, Carter Roy. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free, exclusively on Spotify. This is our second episode on the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Kors III. We'll track the manhunt for one of the FBI's 10 most wanted and explore why the killer refused to admit to the crime even after he was behind bars. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams.
in mid-September 1960, the FBI faced a crushing failure. They'd positively identified remains found near Morrison, Colorado, as those of Adolf Coors III. It was the exact scenario the massive manhunt had hoped to avoid. For the FBI and the public alike, it brought back dark memories of the Lindbergh kidnapping. In both cases, the hostage was found dead, the famous family shattered into pieces, and the FBI appeared useless. But in 1960, there was still a chance for the FBI to do damage control and help the Coors family. Within hours, the kidnapping investigation quickly morphed into a murder investigation. Adcor's remains had been picked over by scavengers, leaving little more than bones, but his clothes held crucial clues. Ad's shirt and jacket were cut open and riddled with bullet holes. Two gunshots in particular pierced Coors's chest and right lung. The Douglas County Coroner, Doug Andrews, deduced that Ad's undershirt and necktie had been cut after the gunshots, as if someone had tried to treat the bullet wounds. The FBI had a pretty good idea who did the shooting. Joseph Corbett Jr., the same man they thought kidnapped Ad Coors. For weeks, authorities continued the search. It became the biggest manhunt since John Dillinger. But with each passing day, it felt like more of a failure. The Coors family was devastated. They'd lost a brother, father, and husband, and they had no answers. They'd been operating under the assumption that Corbett kidnapped Ad Coors for money. But if that was the case, why had Ad been shot instead of ransomed? It didn't make sense. Luckily, the FBI wasn't the Coors family's only resource. They also had connections in the media. In late October 1960, the November edition of Reader's Digest hit the stands, featuring a story on Ad Coors. The article provided specific details about suspect Joseph Corbett Jr., including a photo. Not long after, a lead turned up in the most unexpected place, a Toronto police station. Toronto Police. Hi, uh, officer. You still looking for Joseph Corbett? Uh, the fella who killed the Coors Beer guy? Down in Colorado? Is there more than one dead beer king? Uh, yes, Colorado. But Corbett's not from there. He's not from Toronto either. No accent, eh? Sir, we aren't actively involved in the case. But you have information? Let me grab a pen. And start from the beginning. I used to work with the guy right up here in Toronto. And this week, I saw him in the Reader's Digest. Let me tell you, never thought I'd see his face in a magazine. Did you say he was here? In Toronto? Yeah, yeah, McPherson's Warehouse. You know it? He worked there all summer, then split. McPherson's Warehouse. You sure it wasn't a lookalike? Would I be calling if I wasn't sure? Same man, using a different name. Called himself Osborne. Walter Osborne. Let me get the chief. After some verification, the tip went to the FBI, who traveled straight to McPherson's warehouse. If I'm being honest, it did seem suspicious that Osborne, uh, I mean Corbett, didn't even bother with his two weeks. You mentioned on the phone that his paperwork had some irregularities. I feel like such a fool. After you called, I was going through the health insurance form he filled out. 
There's a question asking to list your spouse's name. What about it? He wrote Marion, which is fine, but some of the fellas remember him mentioning his wife's name was Anne. Unless he's got two wives, then which one is his wife now? Did he say anything about where he may have gone? That's the other weird thing. See this? If you notice, he listed two different addresses, but crossed out one of them. Hmm. I'm going to need a photograph of this. The signs were all there. Don't beat yourself up. We appreciate the help. After getting copies of Walter Osborne's employee paperwork, the FBI sent teams to both addresses he'd listed. They spoke to both landlords, and it quickly became obvious that his real address was the one he'd crossed out. His neighbors called Corbett the mystery boy. As authorities combed Corbett's old room for clues, they realized how much of a hurry he'd been in when he fled. He'd left behind his California Union card, his driver's license, a plastic wallet, and a book entitled Anatomy of a Murder by Robert Traver. It was obvious to the FBI that Corbett was either careless or terrified, though they soon received another tip that suggested both. I haven't seen him since he moved out of here weeks ago. Almost like he was trying to race out of here in that red Pontiac. A red Pontiac? Like a fire engine. You couldn't miss it. Did you by any chance have a record of the plates? Manitoba, I think? We don't write them down. I don't pay much mind to cars, but this one, it stuck out. I can call you if he comes back. Yes, uh, do let us know. The red Pontiac wasn't just a lead, it was a pattern. Back in Turkey Creek, witnesses reported a canary yellow sedan, another car that was hard to miss. After nearly eight months, FBI agents bet that Corbett's love of flashy cars was their trail of breadcrumbs. During a police briefing on the morning of October 29th, FBI Special Agent Don Hostetter alerted Vancouver officers to be on the lookout for an American driving a fire engine red 1960 Pontiac with Manitoba plates. He added that the driver was wanted for kidnapping and murder. Listening, volunteer officer Jack Marshall had an epiphany. He'd seen that very car two weeks earlier at the Maxine Hotel. Marshall didn't want to bring his report to the real FBI agents until he was absolutely certain, so he drove to the hotel himself. There, he questioned the manager, asking about any guests named Corbett or Osborne. The manager didn't recall anyone by those names, and she wasn't giving Marshall the runaround. She really didn't recognize them. Until Marshall mentioned the Red Pontiac. The manager confirmed the car and its driver were staying at the Maxine Hotel, but not under the name of Corbett or Osborne. She gave a different name, Thomas Wainwright. That was it for Marshall. He contacted the authorities who jumped on the lead. By 9.45 that morning, multiple unmarked vehicles surrounded the Maxine Hotel. Then, several FBI agents and the Vancouver detectives positioned themselves inside. Law enforcement officers covered exterior entrance and exit points, while others blocked the stairwells. Agents snuck into the hallway outside Corbett's room, weapons drawn. Who is it? 
Delivery for Mr. Wainwright. As Corbett's door slowly opened, law enforcement readied their weapons. They stormed in, slammed Corbett against a wall, and assessed the room for weapons. Joseph Corbett? I'm your man. With those three words, the nine-month manhunt was over. Joseph Corbett Jr. was arrested. Coming up, the FBI questions their killer. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On October 29th, 1960, FBI agents stormed into a quaint hotel in Vancouver, Canada. Though authorities anticipated a possible firefight, they found Corbett unarmed and willing to cooperate as they searched the room. Mr. Corbett, I'm Agent Gunn. This is Detective Fowlow. We'll conduct a standard search of the premises, then us and the Mounties are going to take you down to the station. Understand? Yeah... Agent, we're not all Mounties. I'm Vancouver PD. Apologies. Didn't exactly have time to consult a travel guide before flying up here. Mr. Corbett, is there anything we should know before entering the bathroom? Toilet flush is fine. Fair enough. Great weather today here in Vancouver, wouldn't you say? Hmm. <laughs> you might think differently if you'd been here more than five minutes, Agent Gunn. How about you, Corbett? Been in Vancouver a long time? You aren't going to answer? Maybe Agent Gunn should keep asking questions then. Find out if all the toilets up here flush. Mr. Corbett, what do you know about a red 1960 Pontiac? It's my rental. You're a car guy? I have a license. Not for long. What can you tell me about this? Looks like Agent Gunn found a gun. Seems to be a Llama 9mm. Fully loaded. With this, you could... If you say shoot a moose, I swear. Sorry, detective. Bag the pistol, and let's get moving. The faster we get down to headquarters, the sooner we can all get to know each other better. When they arrived at the Vancouver police headquarters, Corbett was ushered into an interrogation room. 
The FBI agents wanted a crack at the man who'd managed to evade American law enforcement for nine months. Any information they could glean was better late than never, though Corbett pushed the limits of just how late it would be. Thirsty Corbett? No. Just want you to know we're all friends here, sitting around shooting the breeze. You can say as little or as much as you want. Hell, you don't have to say anything at all. Totally up to you. If you want an attorney here, that's your right. You can even get a free one if you can't afford a lawyer. That's your right as a U.S. citizen. Not just on account of being American. It's your right in Vancouver, too. Of course. For the record, what's your birthday and place of birth? October 25th, 1928. In Seattle. Oh, hope you had a good time on the big day. All things considered... Considering you're so far away from home. Speaking of, did you ever call Denver home? Yes. Mr. Corbett, you understand that in addition to firearm charges, you're wanted on murder charges in Jefferson County, Colorado? I do. So, Colorado. That's where you picked up the yellow 51 Mercury, right? Nice car. Indeed. Any reason you torched it in Atlantic City? Nothing to say about cars? No. Do you remember where you were on February 9th, 1960, around 8 o'clock in the morning? Remember when you said if I wanted an attorney, I had a right? I'm exercising that right. In all countries. Let me know when the guy gets here. Authorities were eager to pull information out of Corbett, but everything needed to be done by the book. The only crimes he'd committed under Canadian law were possession of an unregistered firearm. There was no need to risk Corbett evading justice again, especially due to something as minute as a legal loophole. So with no leads from the interrogation, officers escorted Corbett back to his cell. They didn't have high hopes for his attorney's arrival. There was no doubt that prodding a confession out of Corbett would be challenging, if not impossible. Corbett spent the time in his cell, staring into the distance, sleeping, reading, anything but talking. On Monday, October 31st, at 10 a.m., Joseph Corbett Jr. stood before the judge. He wore the same clothes he'd been arrested in two days prior. He was charged with possession of an unregistered firearm and then extradited to the United States so he could be charged with murder. Corbett was released from Canadian police detainment and placed in the custody of the FBI and U.S. immigration officials. Corbett stood before U.S. District Court Judge William Lindbergh, who set his bail at $100,000. Eventually, Corbett was brought back to Denver, and the questioning continued. The Jefferson County DA, Ronald Hardesty, felt confident he could get a confession out of Corbett. He sat Corbett down, hoping to succeed where the FBI hadn't. Mr. Corbett, let me help you out here. Oh, you gonna make the jail cells quiet at night? Some of these men never sleep. The system has a way of forcing someone to lose perspective. Let me reiterate. You're in jail, facing life in prison. All evidence points to you. Confess now, I can help lighten your sentence. I had nothing to do with what happened to Coors. I'd like to believe you, I really would. But the facts just don't point in the direction of innocence. Facts? 
You don't have a case built on facts. You need somebody to pin this on, and I'm your man. Look, Mr. Corbett, you know how this works. We're all seeking closure here. There is no closure. And pinning it on me or anybody isn't going to help those kids. You know, my mother died, and I still think about her every day. It's been 11 years. No such thing as closure. Don't make me be the new Bruno Hauptmann. Bruno Hauptmann? Really? The guy who fried in the chair for the Lindbergh baby? Ring a bell? I know who he is. I I'd like to hear what you think you have in common. The FBI couldn't solve the Lindbergh kidnapping, so they made that man a scapegoat. Now they're doing the same to me. You seem to know a lot about that kidnapping. It was front page news. Charles Lindbergh got away with it. He killed his own son by accident. He colluded with the FBI and covered it all up. I see. Then who would you propose killed Adolf Kors III? Not me. Look, I killed the hitchhiker. I never denied it. I broke out of the slammer. I even bought a gun. If they want to put me away for that, I'll plead guilty. But don't let me go to prison for the one crime I didn't commit. Despite the enormous amount of evidence the state had against him, Joseph Corbett refused to confess to the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Kors III. It was odd he remained tight-lipped, since Corbett seemed to have no problem admitting that he had murdered another man years prior. This inconsistency probably brought doubt into the prosecution's minds. But not everyone had doubts. In Denver, Colorado, the news of Corbett's arrest reached the Coors family. Ad's four children and his widow Mary were devastated. Coors household, this is Mary Coors. Hello, Mrs. Coors. I'm with the Denver Post. Are you aware that the FBI has apprehended Joseph Corbett Jr.? Yes, I am. Did the FBI inform you directly? No. They should have, shouldn't they? I... I hadn't thought of that. My thoughts are with Ad lately. How that man left him in a garbage dump to be eaten by mountain lions. But to your question, a friend heard about it on the radio and contacted me. They know how difficult this has been for me and... and my children. <sighs> my children. I'm very sorry for your loss. My daughter's been asking about guns. Which bullets hurt more? Which gun kills the fastest? Why didn't Daddy have a gun? <sighs> I want Corbett to know the pain and agony he put us through. I want him to face justice. <laughs> I'm happy the FBI caught him. It's the only joy we have. So you believe Mr. Corbett is responsible for your husband's death? There isn't a doubt in my mind. Though Mrs. Kors was confident, the state still had to make their case, while Corbett insisted on his innocence. Coming up, Joseph Corbett's murder trial. And now, back to our story. On March 13, 1961, Joseph Corbett Jr. stood trial for the murder of Adolf Kors III. First, the district attorney reconstructed the events of February 9, 1960. Then the prosecution brought forward a unique piece of evidence, dirt roads. 
When examining Corbett's yellow Mercury sedan, they found a large amount of dirt in the undercarriage. According to the testimony, the FBI collected 457 different dirt samples. They went through it layer by layer. As geologist Richard Flack explained to the court, because of Colorado's geography and the varied minerals in the rocks, they were able to match the dirt between locations. Looking at the samples, Flack could match rocks to their geographic origin with confidence of a couple miles. Basically, he could confirm where Corbett's car had been. The geologists matched the dirt to Morrison, Colorado, where Coors' car was found. They matched other samples to Sedalia, where Coors' remains were found. Based on how the dirt was layered on the underside of the car, Flack and his team confirmed it had been driven around the Rocky Mountains, around Morrison, into Sedalia, and then to Atlantic City, New Jersey. The bits of gravel were a literal trail of clues, directly connecting Adolf Kors III to Joseph Corbett Jr. But hard science wasn't all they had on their side. The district attorney humanized the case by calling Mary Coors to the stand. Mrs. Coors, when was the last time you saw your husband alive? The morning of February 9th, 1960. Mrs. Coors was a vivid reminder that it wasn't just a case about a kidnapping gone awry, but a family forever broken. The gravity of Mary Coors' new reality prompted several courtroom spectators to shake their heads. According to the Rocky Mountain News, quote, Her appearance was brief, but her presence will be felt for the duration of the trial. Corbett's legal team argued their client was a victim of circumstance. They contended that because he was already a fugitive in an unrelated case, he immediately became a target for the FBI. According to the defense, the fact that he left town the same day Ad Kors disappeared was a coincidence, as was his initial presence around the ranch. Through it all, Corbett remained quiet. He refused to take the stand in his own defense. It didn't take the jury long to come to a conclusion. On March 29, 1961, nearly two weeks after the trial began, Joseph Corbett Jr. was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Though he continued to maintain his innocence, the FBI and criminal prosecutors were able to put together a sequence of events leading up to and after the crime. Corbett started out a prodigy, a science genius, he attended UC Berkeley on a Fulbright scholarship. In the late 1940s, he was on track for a fulfilling and productive life. Then his mother died. Some sources say she fell off an unstable balcony Corbett had been working on. Whether or not Corbett had any part in the accident, the loss hit him hard. He attempted to rob a hitchhiking Air Force sergeant and wound up killing the man. Corbett entered prison before he could finish college, but within a few years, he escaped. He hid out in Denver, but desperately needed money. Corbett started small, plotting gas station holdups and bank robberies, though he didn't act on these plans. At first, it was an intellectual interest. He checked out library books about past FBI cases, reading everything he could about criminals and famous kidnappings. 
All his life, he'd been fascinated with the Lindbergh kidnapping. And at some point in the late 1950s, Corbett decided to become a copycat criminal. Of course, in Corbett's mind, his crime would be different. He planned to succeed. He'd keep his victim alive, successfully ransom millions, and flee to South America. According to author Philip Jett, Corbett bought hand and leg cuffs. Then he ordered a gun in the mail under his brother's first and middle names, Walter Osborne. Corbett spent months pinpointing the perfect target, finally landing on Adolf Kors III, heir to millions and resident of a remote ranch. Corbett might have settled on his target after learning that decades ago, someone else had tried to kidnap Ad Kors's father. Again, Corbett seemed to think he was smarter than past criminals. He thought he'd be successful where they hadn't. Corbett stalked Ad Kors for months, parking his bright yellow sedan near the ranch and watching the man's every move. The car's color was memorable. Corbett's first mistake. Multiple witnesses spotted the vibrant yellow car around the Coors Ranch in early 1960. But Corbett didn't know that yet. He memorized Coors' routine and picked the time to strike. On the morning of February 9, 1960, Corbett drove out to the Turkey Creek Bridge and used his car to block the one-lane dirt road. He opened his car hood as if he'd stopped because of car trouble, then... He waited. Ad Coors drove up the road and stopped, according to plan. Once Ad was looking into the hood of the Mercury, Corbett raised his gun, ready to intimidate the millionaire into becoming his hostage. But Ad was not a man to be intimidated. He reached for Corbett's gun, hoping to defend himself. The men tussled, hats and glasses flying. When he couldn't wrench the gun from Corbett, Ad made a run for it. He'd drive back the way he came. As Ad raced to his car, Corbett shot twice. Maybe he only meant to wound Ad or scare him. Or maybe he thought a dead hostage was better than an escaped one. Either way, pistol fire rang out through Morrison's foothills. And Ad Coors crumpled to the ground. Blood pooled over khaki-colored dirt as Corbett raced to see what he'd done. He watched Ad take his last breath and then dragged the lifeless body into the back of his car. Racing away from the crime scene, Corbett's thoughts were probably frantic. This was not his plan. But maybe he could still get away with the ransom. Corbett already had the typed-up note ready in the car with the handcuffs. So Corbett sped to a dump where he left Ad Kors's body wrapped in a blanket. He put the ransom note in the mail, demanding Mary Coors turn over $500,000 in exchange for the safe return of her husband. But Corbett must have started freaking out at this point because he didn't stick around to get the money. He drove to Atlantic City, where he attempted to destroy all the evidence by setting fire to his car. Then he crossed the border to Canada, where he hid out living in hotels and working odd jobs under aliases for months. Once again, he failed to fly under the radar, renting the flashy red Pontiac and having memorable exchanges with landlords, co-workers, and hotel clerks. 
With this story in the open, the FBI and the Kors family were forced to reckon with the fact that they'd never even had a chance to save Ad Kors. He was dead before they knew he was missing. There was only grim solace in seeing Ad's killer behind bars. As the years passed, the Kors family grew to accept the tragedy. Around 1978, Adolf Kors IV, Ad's son, attempted to visit Corbett in prison. Kors had become a born-again Christian and wanted to convey a message to Corbett. But Corbett refused to see him three different times. On his final attempt to see Corbett, Kors passed along a note wedged between the pages of a Bible. I want to forgive you for what you did to my family and ask for your forgiveness for the hatred we've had for you all these years. As far as we know, Corbett never replied. Despite great tragedy, the Kors family and business remained remarkably successful. Ad's two brothers took over his role in the company, and under their leadership, the beer business thrived. Coors remains a household name internationally, but especially in Colorado. Their golden brewery is the largest in the world, offering daily tours and tastings. They sponsor Coors Field, where the Colorado Rockies play baseball, and Ad Coors descendants still hold major stakes in the company. They're a good reminder that even after a terrible tragedy, life can go on. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacy Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Luther M. Mace, edited by Sarah Batchelor, Maggie Admire, and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Michael Langsner. It stars Zelda Diana Black, Joe Hernandez, Nazee Tarsha, Ellie Schiff, and Charlie Wess. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.